My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. So the next stage in my story of my growing up and this thread that I try to explore, my story in the context of the personal and the political, is when I leave home at 18. I was very determined to move out at home at 18. I had been saying it for a few years that I'm going to leave home when I was 18. And I think it was because of my own insecurities and my parents probably trying to manage a teenager who was wanting to be out and do things that were culturally for them not really okay. And so I was feeling the constraints of living at home and I didn't feel comfortable there and I didn't feel free there. And so I wanted my freedom. And one way to do that was to get a place in college and to try to get a grant to go to college and so on. My sister had also gone to college already. And I remember my father sitting me down and saying, well, look, we can, we're supporting your sister's time in college, but we can't afford to have two of you in college at once. So why don't you wait a few years and do something else? But I had determination to go to art college and I said, no, I will finance myself. I don't, I wanted to, I was fiercely independent. I really didn't want to be a burden on my parents. And so I was determined I could do this by myself. And so I got into a, a college and I wanted to find one that was far away because my sister was commuting to her college, being near enough to do that. So I didn't want to get into any of the colleges that were near me because then I couldn't move out. I got into an art college in Limerick and it had for first year for foundation year, there was a new source of grants coming into Ireland at the time. I think it was called an ESS grant. And that meant I could have a base income and I could also probably get a part-time job, which I'd gotten used to doing every summer. But before I went to college, I had saved up enough to make a trip of my own, an adventure from that last summer between finishing school and going to college. And where I wanted to go initially with the money I'd saved from the previous summer, I had enough for a flight and to go somewhere. I wanted to go to America because in Ireland in the 1980s, our worldview was that America was free and liberal and completely different from Ireland. And of course, that impression was completely through the lens of American television. We really knew very little about America and we imagined it to be this completely wild and free place. And so I wanted to go to America. And I had met a girl from America through a scouting girl guide adventure that I'd been on before. And I wrote to her and I said, can I come and stay with her? She was in Ohio. And that was beginning to become a plan. When just at the end of my school year, one of the girls from Nigeria sort of announced and said, would anyone like to come back? To Nigeria with me this summer. And I immediately dropped all plans in my head to go to America and said, yes, I will. And I think for at first she didn't really believe me and other people didn't really believe me, but in my head, I'd already got the money. I'd already made plans to go somewhere and it was an easy decision to make. And I thought to myself, there is no way I would have this opportunity again easily 
to go on such an amazing, different adventure, different culture. And so I, we kept talking, and over the couple of days, she realized I was serious, and we started making plans for me to go and spend a month in Lagos with her and her family. And again, this fierce independence, I told my parents this, and they were very supportive. And I think there was a kind of uh, innocence about travel that they didn't hold back. I'm sure they were nervous about the idea, but they didn't hold back and criticize that. They really supported the idea of world travel adventure as something that would be something I think my mother in particular wanted to do herself as a young person and didn't get to do. And so they supported me doing that and said, go ahead. And, you know, you have to pay for it yourself. And I was quite determined to do that anyway. And I had my money from my previous part-time jobs. I had to organize my flight that flew from London, in fact, to Nigeria was Aeroflot. And it did that through as much Soviet-controlled airspace as it could, which was first Sofia in Bulgaria, and then unexpectedly it also landed and refueled in Libya, and then on to Lagos. So I had to organize that, and I also had to organize injections and vaccinations for traveling to Africa at that time. I had to get a yellow fever and get a few other injections for vaccines, and then in addition to have malaria tablets to bring with me. So I did all that organizing and within a pretty short space of time I'd sat my final exams for school and within I think a week later my friend had already returned to Lagos and I went out on my own. And it was a wonderful adventure for an 18-year-old and it was also extremely formative and made a huge impression on me. I remember when we landed in Bulgaria, there I was in the airport for a while, and this was Soviet-era airport. We couldn't leave the airport, and there was very little to eat there. You could get soft drink and chocolate, if I remember right. And then we flew on and stopped without it being on my ticket. It, I knew I was stopping in Bulgaria, but I didn't know. We were refueling in Libya, in Tripoli. And I thought for a moment that I was on the wrong plane when they said we were landing in Tripoli. And this was Gaddafi's Libya. This was, for us Westerners, a fearful place. So I got a bit of a fright and we were allowed to get off the plane to use the toilets while they refueled and go about in the airport. And I wandered down a corridor in the airport only to be met by some heavily military holding uh, machine guns and saying, no, no, not this way. And this was my adventure. And there was also a part of the airport glass, I remember. And actually, I think this was in Sofia, not in Tripoli. I'm not sure. There was part of the airport glass around the surrounding building where there was a spray of bullet holes. It was something that ought to have been scary, but I think maybe because I'd grown up in Northern Ireland I was not unused to seeing the idea that there was military presence or there had been violence, but that I could still be safe within that if I knew where to go and where not to go. And definitely down that corridor wasn't the place to have gone. But um, so I flew on uh, to Lagos and I had my backpack with me and all my stuff for my month. And I remember as I got off the plane, so too did the Nigerian wait wrestling team and my backpack came off the plane on the conveyor belt and one of the straps of it got caught in the place where the conveyor belt turned back underneath and I went to try to slowly gently rise the strap off so that it wouldn't rip but instead one of these huge Nigerian men from the wrestling team came over to help me and yanked my backpack and ripped the part of the belt off which disappeared shot underneath that was sort of my first arrival and I came through then anyway the airport and met was met by my Nigerian friend and her parents and so I spent this month there with their family and everything that could be different was different they lived in a part of Lagos that was being developed very close to the airport at that time. 
it was a new area being built and her father and mother were middle class Nigerians. They were not of the super wealthy. We had another Nigerian friend who was more well-to-do, which we did visit in a kind of leafy laned place. They had like people outside their properties in security boxes, kind of like a guard. But my friend's parents had enough money to send their daughter to an Irish boarding school, which is the school I was a day pupil at. They weren't extremely wealthy. And so they were building what was called a duplex, like a semi-detached house in this new development area. And the father was an accountant and the mother ran a nursing clinic for pregnancy or uh, maternal care as a nurse. And so they lived in this duplex and they also had an extra little room above a garage where there were two girls from their hometown. Their hometown wasn't Lagos, it was another town about 60 kilometers away. And this practice was very common where you would take in two or more young girls in order to give them the opportunity of a better school education in Lagos. So they would have them in their home and they were then extra help for the family. And so they had to do, everybody had chores and duties, but these two girls had definitely the lion's share of doing the clothes washing by hand or sweeping and cleaning or helping with the cooking, helping the mum with the, you know these things because their children were not all at home all of the time and they were out at work. So this was the household that I came to live in. And then it was a walled concrete kind of garden. There was no plants in the garden. It's just a dirt kind of floor. Of, it was just a dirt kind of yard and big concrete walls. And then outside of that, when we went out the gate of the two standalone semi-detached houses, there were no others there near us yet. But you could see pockets of these houses being built all over this area. And outside of their duplex were the poorer people of the community. And they lived in a more of a shanty town in just kind of huts with corrugated and roofs. And there were streets and streets of those and streets and streets of children walking about those and little shops within them. So we might go out to get some plantain or something for dinner beans and rice and so on, just in the locality around her house. And I was immediately followed by, sometimes I'd say 30 to 50, maybe 100 children from the area because I was white. So I had this first experience of the reversal of being someone of a different color, which I know had been experienced by the people I knew in Dublin who were the only black boy in Kalani or the only Pakistani person in the area that I lived in. And so here I got that reversed. And not only did people stare, but the children shouted and pointed. And I learned this word very quickly in Yoruba, which is Oyibo. And I asked my friend, what did that mean? And she said, it means white person. So the children would come and dance around me shouting Oyibo, Oyibo. And so I would engage with them. And at first they wouldn't come near me. They'd, if, I, if I kind of turned to look at them, they'd run squealing away. Then I would put out my hand to shake hands with somebody because that was a way that people greeted each other. And so one little child would usually pluck up the courage to shake my hand and then laugh and giggle. And then the next thing maybe 50 of them would suddenly have the courage to shake my hand. So I used to do this in the evenings with my friend and interact with the children. And it was another difference was the level of religious practice in Lagos in the families at that time, where the whole family got up every morning at 5.30 in the morning for an hour to sometimes two hours of prayers that they said together as a family while kneeling. And it was really a deliberate kind of endurance of offering up these prayers from a position of not being comfortable. And there was a sort of almost like a winning a prize that you got for staying and praying longer. And so the family didn't require this of me as their guest, and they knew it was a culturally different thing 
but a couple of times I got up to do it with them just to experience what they were doing and understand it a bit. In addition to that, they went to church uh, for long, long services every Sunday. So while I was there, I did that. And that was another place where amongst adults and children, I was the only white person and was again stared at, pointed at and looked at and actually really little children, like the particularly for some reason, little boys more than little girls, not only stared, but would, if I was close to them, I just remember being in a pew in the church and a little boy sitting in the pew in front of me, about three, turned round, saw me, his eyes widened, and he started screaming in terror. So I was so strange looking that I was terrifying to him. And his poor mother had to try to comfort him and calm him down in the church. The churches were lively, noisy places, by the way, although they were Christian churches. They had clearly integrated older practices from pre-Christianity and pre-colonialization, where there was a lot of rituals and offerings and dancing and singing. So people danced up to the, the aisle and brought rice offerings and other kinds of offerings that clearly had layovers from previous cultures. I also got to go to a couple of weddings uh, in different regions uh, with the family. And they were really interesting too. One was a Christian wedding and one was a Muslim wedding. And the family in for one of them decided to dress me up as in their traditional clothing, which were amazing colored materials and big head wraps. So like a kind of a headdress made by wrapping a long, long piece of material round and round and round and then tucking it in. So they first, I had quite short blonde hair at that time. So at first the mom of the family cornrowed my very short blonde hair. And that was very painful. <laughs> Being pulled into these really tight, tight rows was hard for them to stay there. My hair slipped out a lot. And then they put my head in this wrap and put me in a full dress of, of material, bright colors and patterned material. And we went all together to this wedding and stopped along the way as kids would try to sell you a cut piece of sugar cane to suck on through the car window and through markets of culture expressions all over the place, jungle and yeah, lively, lively adventures. And we got to this wedding there. I remember that there was a little boy who was an albino black person. So he had pale skin and he spotted me. And because I was probably dressed up the way I was, he started speaking very excitedly to me in Yoruba and was identifying that I was looking like him. But sadly, I couldn't speak Yoruba and I couldn't speak with him. And I think they probably explained to him that sadly I wasn't like him. I was a white person, not a white black person. So I had all of those adventures, but I also had these shocks of culture where at one point in the household, one of the girls that stayed there for school and was also a servant of sorts was really miserable, really, really unhappy. And she was sort of expressing suicidal tendencies. At one point, she actually did take some sleeping pills, not enough to kill herself, but basically to kind of express how um, she wanted to kill herself. And she was very unhappy. And I remember the way that that was handled within the family was for her to sit outside and uh, kneel in front of the parents and particularly the mother and an aunt that came over and they they basically lectured her for hours and hours outside and presumably I would catch sometimes there would be English phrases in the Yoruba and the gist of it was for her to understand the privilege she was being offered and the education she was being offered and ignore it and do well at school and all of this kind of thing and basically forget her feelings and forget her anguish and, and work hard and that she would she would benefit from that if she knuckled down and just yeah got on with things. Which was interesting. And the other thing that I noticed was different was the respect that all the children had for their elders whenever an elder came. They would greet them with a curtsy or a bow 
or a handshake and they deferred to them in all things. And I remember trying to talk to my friend who I'd known in Ireland as someone who would have maybe been very well behaved in school and certainly deferred to older people's authority. But maybe we were more irreverent about that when we were uh, all hanging out together as schoolgirls. But back home, when I tried to raise uh, anything that was sort of a question about the way things were organized, it was a very rigid, but this is how it is, and this is how my parents say it is, and this is what my aunt says it is. And there wasn't really, even away from them, room for discussion or debate. It was, and so I realized that while I thought of my own parents as very strict and controlling in some ways, it was a very different level of that than what my African friends were used to. And it was a changing period in, in the history of Nigeria when I was there in the 1980s. There was this huge amount of growth. There was a lot of Western companies there when we were at the wedding parties. After the weddings, there was a lot of cola or Sprite in bottles. And I remember the other thing that was very popular I don't know if it still is, but it was very popular to have the, the little plastic cups. They were quite solid plastic and other parts of the wedding accoutrements to have a picture of the groom and bride on them. Or I think we went to an 80th birthday party and had a picture printed onto this kind of hard plastic plates of the person whose birthday it was. These were sort of fun cultural differences. And I got to explore out and about in the markets as well. Got a couple of marriage proposals in the market and I enjoyed this like completely different volume of people it was a bit scary to me, but I enjoyed a lot of those really vibrant spaces that I got to explore in the markets. I mean, everywhere that we went was so full of people. That was very different for a young Irish woman to see, you know, at that time, Lagos is so much bigger now, but at that time there was already Eight million people lived in Lagos. So that dense population was really different. They were having issues with the amount of cars on the roads. And the there was a federal military government in par when I was there. That was kind of a pattern of coups and control that was still evolving in Lagos at the time. And they had dictated that people could drive their cars based on number plates. If you had this numbers in your car, or you had those numbers in your car, you could drive your car on a Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, for example. And if there were the other numbers, then it was Tuesday or Friday and Saturday or something like this. But what had actually happened in order for people to still be able to go where they needed to go by car, there was buses and so on, and the buses were always jam-packed with people spilling out of them and swinging out of the backs of them and running to jump into them, but there was a lot of cars and people would buy two cars with different numbers on the number plates so that they could go out on all the days, which basically increased the amount of cars in circulation. And when we'd be on one of the highways moving about, it might start off as a kind of two-lane dual carriageway. But if there was any amount of traffic buildup, people would start making it more like a four-lane Highway, they just squeeze around each other, go up into driveways or drive up onto the middle verge. And it was pretty chaotic and pretty wild to see. And then the police, who were nicknamed Yellow Fever because they had yellow shirts, don't know if they're still that, but they would go out and try to stop these cars. Um, and they also tried to stop people crossing the road on the dual carriageways, not at bridges. There were pedestrian bridges over them, but they were often at a big distance from each other. And I remember seeing the yellow fever police making people that they'd caught trying to cross the meridian kneel on the meridian for an extra time saying, now you've ended up making more time than it you would have if you'd gone and walked over to the, the bridge. So it was, it was so different than the scale and order that I was used to. And so was the, the landscape and the, the sea. I went swimming in a in a beach they took me to with huge waves. I think it might have been Badagri Beach and coconut palms 
and people going up and climbing the coconut tree and selling coconuts to us and drinking fresh coconut milk and so on in these huge waves. But it wasn't popular for many Nigerians to swim. In fact, I learned that the more people lived inland near rivers, they had more tradition of swimming than the coastal Nigerians. And I was probably oblivious to any of the risks. I just thought this was this amazing warm sea. And I remember kind of being watched in amusement and perhaps horror by some people along the beach as I went out into the waves. And I remember I was wearing a little bikini and I would get kind of picked up by the waves and smashed onto the beach. And I'd be kind of lying there sprawled as the wave would withdraw and then I'd jump back up again and go do it again and had this amazing fun. I remember thinking, especially when listening to the news of the things that the federal government doing, there were many things that were also really shocking and distressing to me. There was punishment by death for certain crimes and it had been fairly recent history in the 1980s where some of those had been public executions that people went to. So it was really hard for a young 18-year-old from Ireland to understand those differences. And I remember some of the federal military decrees. They had a what they called a war against indiscipline, which were ads on the television trying to make people cue or make people work hard and erase corruption, which was rife in the public service and so on. And there were these strange ads showing a chaotic queue and then showing an orderly queue with this war against indiscipline motto or a secretary sitting filing her nails and then a secretary productively working. So this strange kind of attempt to get the culture to be workers and to behave in certain ways. And yet at the same time, then the these federal military decrees of things against the law, one of which was that young people I'd just done my final exams, my leaving certificate, uh, and young people in Nigeria doing state exams, that if they were caught cheating in a public state exam, had the death penalty against it, which was incredible for me to try to take in. And also there were different things that I saw, different news stories. There was a woman who had essentially committed manslaughter and hit Another man that was fighting with her husband over the head with something heavy enough that killed him. And she was going to be sentenced to death. And she had children. I think she actually might have been pregnant. I don't know what they were going to do about that. But these were things that were just an assault. And then that juxtaposed with this deeply Christian faith and family order. It was a lot to, to take in. But I remember thinking, just like I had thought when I left Northern Ireland, that I had to wake up to my assumptions and my prejudices and my biases and my beliefs. Having explored to some degree the biases and prejudices that I'd been confronted with when I moved from the north to the south. So when I was experiencing these big cultural differences and challenges to my understanding of the world in Nigeria, I was aware that I was having fearful or prejudiced or judgmental kinds of reactions. And I worked really hard to try and face that when I was there. And so some of the things about this war against indiscipline and this corporal punishment, this punishment by death, getting caught cheating, were really confronting and it was hard it was it was uncomfortable because i could hear words inside my head that were judgmental that were viewing that through a very particular lens and i was trying to understand and i was trying to ask the family different things and being their guest i was cautious about what i asked about what their attitude to the death penalty was as christians and I was very much a pacifist. I didn't really understand a great deal about structural violence. I thought of it in a relatively straightforward way, as you do when you're younger and you don't have the influence of all these different worldviews and all of this, trying to understand it in a more gray and 
systemic way. I didn't really have any of that. I just saw it as a right or wrong. And so it was, in my view, from growing up in Northern Ireland, it was wrong to kill. And even though I had come to understand much more about the political struggles, I still was very much coming at things at 18 from the point of view of pacifism. And so I, I asked those questions, and I think I remember the um, older members of the family explaining to me that these were simply deterrents, that saying there was a death penalty didn't necessarily mean that any young person was going to be put to death for cheating in a public exam, but having that there for them was a logical kind of prevention. It just seemed so extreme to me. So I was exploring all of these edges and... It was both exciting and also really challenging, even from down to things like what we were eating was so different. And I had been schooled in the politeness of being a guest, and I didn't like lots of foods at 18. I was not the adventurous eater that I would be today. I didn't really like vegetables, which is something that would surprise a lot of people now that know me eating these different foods. The way I had been brought up had been to be eat whatever it was that was put in front of you, especially if you were a guest and you were in your best behavior. And I remember I didn't like grapefruit. And I remember being invited to join my grandmother at uh, lunch at a friend's of hers of older people's home and being very much told to be on my best behavior. And they had a starter that was grapefruit and my heart sank. But in my politeness, this taste of bitterness that I so loathed, I cut up my grapefruit carefully into segments and swallowed each of them whole to avoid the texture and the taste that I disliked. So here I was in Africa with very different meals. There was only, I think, pounded yam felt familiar because it was a bit like mashed potato eat things that had spice they would have taken and tried to give me things with a little less spice in them, which I, I didn't have any tolerance for spice at all. And they had other foods that I hadn't really encountered and they ate a lot of rice and beans and that was also not really familiar for me. And the other ways that they ate was different kinds of vegetables in, in really different forms. And one of them I remember thinking about how would I bring these stories home? How would I describe these foods? Because in the 1980s, it was really a different kind of visual world. We had only just got access to small Instamatic cameras that were accessible by price. And I'd got one of these for a birthday. And it was just a slim little kind of rectangle a bit longer than a cigarette box and a bit narrower. And it had this viewfinder that when you looked through it, you weren't looking through the lens. And so if you weren't careful, you had to move your picture a little to one side. Otherwise, you chopped people off because of where the viewfinder was. And it had a little slider that rolled on your film inside of it, which was only 12 pictures in any roll of film. And then it had a, a sort of insert into a cog of a flash bulb, which when you wound on it also turned because if you'd press the button when it was in, it had flashed. So I'd only four or maybe a maximum of eight flashes to go along with my 12 pictures. And I maybe would brought with me two rolls of film. So it was a very different world that you were going to maybe take much fewer pictures. They weren't really going to be that good quality and definitely the flash photographs were not great at all. And so this was part of what I knew about from people who traveled was that I had to formulate stories to bring back with me to share with friends and family. And so I remember particularly in Nigeria, really trying to already prepare these stories as memories so as I wouldn't forget and I would have descriptions already prepared for trying to explain what it was I was seeing, eating, smelling, meeting, greeting, and so on. And so with the food, I remember this one particular greeny food that was made by pounding a particular green vegetable in a mortal and pestle and till out of it came 
a kind of mucolodulous uh, liquid that was, in my description, I said that the result of texture was these kind of quite lumpy bits of green surrounded by kind of gloopy bits. And so I remember saying, I'll describe that as green frog spawn in white egg white. And this was sort of how I went on each day was was thinking about what I was seeing and experiencing. And I brought those stories home. And I also brought home some of the stories about how I had had my assumptions challenged and how much I had experienced what it was like to have this reversal of being the only white person in a very, very black African country. And just that stayed with me because I was only 18 then and it, it started to really make a, a foundation for an understanding of the world that was about challenging worldviews and challenging my perceptions and my biases, even though you can never get rid of all unconscious biases. And I think it's still there in me today, some of those experiences of trying to understand different perspectives in the world and how Africa at the time was viewed was very much through the lens of the charity lens and the, as they're called in Ireland, the black baby boxes, because the trochra boxes always had a picture of an African emaciated child, and that was charity box that people collected for during Lent. So I went back to Ireland at the end of that trip, and I had to make up some of my income. I had to try to get my money ready because I was determined to go off to college, and I had gotten into art college, and I was delighted. I don't think I expected to get into any art college, but I had had this growing love of art and opportunity to take art lessons in Ashford, where we were living with this lovely old artist called Kurt Del Monte, and he had taken a kind of interest in me, and I got to take classes with him first, but then he kind of followed up with me, and so then I thought, I'll go to art college. But before then, I needed to earn more money because I had made this brave statement that I would go it alone and I would fund myself. So I went back up to Northern Ireland again and the building that I had previously painted on holidays was now functioning as office spaces and it didn't really have very many of them rented out yet. So one of the things that it was doing to try to drum up income was it was hard to rent office space in Belfast during what was still part of the Troubles. So what they'd done was create a Belfast office secretarial services, which meant that Dublin businesses could have a Belfast address. Their post would come in to the office in Belfast, and it would make, in some cases, simply that they had, they had a presence north and south. And in some, it was just a matter of bundling up their mail and sending it to the Dublin office, and they dealt with it. But it was also offered a phone answering service. And so I was the receptionist that answered the phone. And I was in this building pretty much on my own again, getting a lift up and down from people who worked in Belfast that I'd gotten to know through sailing and through friends of my dad. And I came up and I went to this office by myself and I sat all day answering the phone and pretending in each instance uh, that I was whatever the business was. And there were a few of them so I would just answer with, I think, the, the phone number. And then someone would say, and is that such a such office? And I'd say yes. And then they'd say, is that some other office? And I'd say yes. And all I did was take names and addresses and then post those, I think, to those different businesses in Dublin. And they followed up and rang them up and followed up for a business in the north. But one of them was a hair transplant clinic in Dublin that rented our space in this way and then somewhere else in the city had a hair transplant clinic as well that it booked people into. So I would take calls and somebody would say, is this the hair transplant place? And I would say, yes, it is. And then um, I would say, can I take your name and address and we'll send you out some information? And that's all I had to do. 
But I unfortunately told some of the men and the lads that I was out sailing with that this was what my job was. And so on at least two occasions, they rang me up and completely caught me out and made up things that were hilarious and took a few minutes for me to realize were complete made up things. So I think one of them was one of them ringing up and they'd always ring up with a really strong kind of Antrim accent and say, uh, so is that the hair transplant place? And I'd be like, yes, it is. And they'd say, I'm, I'm inquiring about a hair transplant. And I'd start trying to say, we'll send you the information. They said, no, I've got a couple of questions first. And I had no clue about anything about this process. But I would go, oh, all right, yeah, what kind of questions? And they, they, one of them one time said, um, so um, does it work? And I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 it works. And he's like, well, do you have any examples of someone it worked on? <laughs> I remember answering, I hadn't a clue about this, but for some reason I'd heard that Elton John had had a hair transplant. So I said, uh, uh, Elton John? And the person laughed their head off because it was actually one of my friends and I was swearing at them and being caught out by them. But on another occasion, another one of these men rang me up and he said, uh, his question was, um, so uh, is it discreet? And I thought, oh God, what is he asking me? And I said, uh, yeah, 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 it's discreet. And he said, and then I couldn't help blurting out, why? <laughs> he said, well, because I want them on my chest. So there was a lot of this thing that would go on, but they, they eventually I'd catch on. But, but then I, sometimes some of the conversations were so mad that I wouldn't be sure whether this was a real person and it might well turn out to be asking something and not one of my friends from sailing calling me up. So I had a, a good summer um, commuting and sailing in the evenings on the sailing nights and going out on boats and getting up to mischief and getting even across to Scotland and staying with different my two different grandmothers and probably staying as much as I could with my father's mother because I tended to get away with a bit more mischief. Um, but I think I was staying in both and getting caught sneaking back in very late on Saturday night after being down in yacht clubs and so on. And I, I also was shifting I suppose, growing up a bit, and I wanted something different, I think, from what we didn't ever call dating. That was a language I learned later from America, but it was kind of dating and going out with people. And in the North, I find that I was asked out a bit more by some older people than I was used to going out with. And I really liked that in some ways. I was treated with a different kind of attitude of being taken out to dinner and this sort of thing. But on the other hand, when I look back at that in terms of the dynamic of I was a young blonde, probably reasonably considered okay looking and, you know, being asked out to sort of be on someone's arm going out to like something that was on and be kind of displayed in a weird way that I can only recognize now. But I was still going out with one of these men whenever I then went off to art college in the September. And I continued to go out with him for at least a month, maybe two after I went to art college. And that didn't really set me up very well in terms of integrating socially in college. And I found the first parts of college socializing challenging, not only because Limerick, as I later described it, especially the first two years I spent there at art college, was a kind of den of iniquity. It was a really different place in Ireland at the time. I think a lot of people with any kind of creative energy about them or alternative scene or definitely anyone who was not straight had left the country in the 80s because it was such a oppressive culture. Or it turned out a lot of them had gone to art college. And so it had an experimentation scene in every way, shape or form. And it definitely had a lot less straight people. 
And so I went off amongst this new social group, a quite different experience of different socioeconomics, because we were all there, especially in that first year. We were on this new European grant, and so that was kind of needs blind. So it was all different kinds of people, country and rural, very much working class backgrounds, and then some middle class, but probably in more of a minority than otherwise. And I was thrown into that, but I actually had still this uh, relationship going on for a little while. And I think that I, it was a kind of a cushion and I didn't have to get over what really was a lot of shyness that I still had within me, even though I had come out of myself a lot more in certain ways. I still was easy to revert back to this quite shy, quite socially anxious and nervous person. And I think that that's something I now realize with someone who has, and maybe non-neurotypical is something I'd probably say now, um, way in my in the world, that those leaps, those big social changes were times of great challenge to me in terms of socially integrating. But I did manage to get into a shared house. I Another thing that was kind of strange for me was that my dad did offer to do a guarantor because it turned out in order to be in a shared house, somebody had to get a parent or another adult to sign a guarantor that the rent would be paid. and Otherwise, you couldn't get a house rented to students. And my dad said he would do that. But that put me in a funny situation because our, our landlord came, very old-fashioned way, it would sound now, but with a rent book every month for the rent. And I ended up being the person collecting it from my friends in order to give to the landlord. Um, and my father would put me under, kind of, he'd check on the phone and make sure it was all happening because he was liable. And so what happened after a couple of months of us all settling in to a house that I was enjoying and thought I had some friends in, that things in the craziness of experimental and drugs and alcohol and all of this stuff going on, that two, it turned out that two of the guys that lived in the house that were twins ended up getting into some very hard stuff. They ended up not just experimenting. They basically ended up on heroin and deteriorated and weren't having money. And things basically all came to a head and everybody left the house in a kind of, a, we've got to get out of here. It's all not good. But that left me in the position with this house that I had to hand back over to the landlord, but with debt, with the kind of deposit not returned or different things like this, and then kind of not wanting to tell my dad really how much trouble that was and just to pay it off myself and keep it quiet. So I wasn't doing very well on spreading my funding across my needs because I had done my savings in the summer, I'd got my grant, but that was the other thing was that grant was actually delayed for a couple of months coming in and all of this art students were desperately awaiting this magical grant that would make our lives easier. But at the same time, living off savings or whatever everyone was doing, we weren't very sensible with money. We were definitely out partying and I was a smoker at the time and I was buying those cigarettes and I, much before I would spend a lot of money on food. And so I would buy like a sack of potatoes or sometimes I'd hitchhike home and bring back a sack of potatoes and then I'd just buy a couple of turnips for, I remember, like 27 pence or in our old punt money and then maybe a couple of stock cubes and I'd make a big pot of potato soup and then in the house kitty I'd have shared porridge that we had and shared milk and shared sliced pan and that would sort of get me through breakfast and a bit of lunch and then I'd have my big potato soup every night for I think nearly one point for about a month that was what I was eating. But it was an interesting juxtaposition at that time because I mentioned the way that we understood issues in Africa in terms of poverty in the global south was through the lens of these charity boxes and stories of starving Africans and all this kind of notions. And I'd just been to Nigeria and I'd experienced a modern country would had these different cultural norms, but it had 
all of the things that we would expect a country to have in the West. And, and it was a really different image of Africa that I'd gotten to experience. And so what happened around that time was the first televised famine images came to Ireland because there was a horrendous situation war and the typical conflict that arises and goes on to the people and the Ethiopian famine was happening. And so we were watching that on our television in the house. And so I I felt completely unable to tell anyone that I was quite hungry and that I didn't spend my money on food and didn't really have enough. And I thought, well, I can't say anything about that if I'm losing a bit of weight and look at what I'm looking at on the television. So that was kind of a juxtaposition moment for me as well, just to be faced with and try to think about these things. And it was also the year that Live Aid happened in Ireland. Again, very different model than we would understand in the world now. And in fact, when Live Aid was a repeated event, it was really very sour and very past its sell-by date. But it was a huge thing for us in the 1980s where these rock stars we admired, I had totally followed Bob Geldof of the Boomtown Rats through my teens, it was probably one of the first bands I was following, um, and then all of the other greats, and they were going to go and be in Wembley Stadium in London, and they were going to do this magical thing to us, the idea of a simultaneous broadcast across the world um, with different rock stars in America and elsewhere. And so that was phenomenal for us. And we all watched Live Aid and we had watched Bob Geldof get angry and swear and on BBC television or Channel 4 or whatever it was on and, and talk to the audience when the first donations weren't really coming in fast enough because telephone lines had all been lined up and it was people were a bit blown away, I'd say, watching the concert to think about what its purpose or remember what its purpose had been. And so there was this huge event and he was getting hat up and I remember him saying, just give us the fucking money and and the sort of shock of that. And, you know, but, but people did and there was, you know, these millions raised and it was all fueled by this image of starving Africans in the Ethiopian famine. So that was kind of what was happening in the bigger world around me in those first couple of months. 